You're listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse number 13. James chapter 4, verse 13. Those watching online, we're so honored to have you with us this morning. James chapter 4, verse 13. Let's stand uh, as we get our hearts ready, as we stand in reverence to the reading of the words of our great God through James. Now listen to the words of God through James. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. You may be seated. Craig Rochelle, in his book that he wrote a few years ago called The Christian Atheist, asserts that a Christian atheist is a person who believes in God but acts as if he doesn't exist. In other words, you and I can believe in God and we can believe things about God but yet practically live out our lives as if we are an atheist, as if we don't believe in God. Now, to believe in God and to know God has its implications. And if you really believe that God exists, then you know that you are personally accountable to Him in every facet of your life. But I have found that even people that go to church that are well-meaning, what we would consider God-fearing, Bible-toting Christians, even those people, including myself, can at times live like a functional deist. And that is that I can believe that God is out there, but that He really is not that much of a part of my everyday life. And so the struggle that a lot of us have is either we believe in our minds that either A, God is too busy to deal with our problems, or B, that we are ultimately in control of our destiny and God is too far away to care. And you say, Pastor, I don't believe that. And you may say you don't believe it, but does your life show something different? See, one of the themes in the book of James is that real, genuine faith is not just something that you say. It's something that you show. It's not enough to call yourself a Christian. You have to and you should demonstrate it not only by your attitude, but by the actions of your life. And if you have been with us these past few weeks, we have seen this theme all throughout the book, that James, as a pastor, is being very practical to us. And last week we saw in chapter 4 that conflict that we have with other people comes from the conflict that we have within ourselves, ultimately, with God. And he told us that the cure for our conflict with other people is submitting humbly to God. And so James here is continuing that theme. It's not enough to say that you believe in God. You need to demonstrate it. And here he gives us the example of personal planning and time management. So we're just going to dive in two points, and it doesn't mean a short sermon, but it just means two points. First thing I want you to see is this, the delusion of living as if we are self-sovereign. The delusion of living as if we are in control. James in verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. This, if you read it 
is the language of everyday business people. I imagine a, a boardroom where business people are gathering together and they're now plotting where they are going to go and establish some business. And, and here in James's day, they would establish a location. We're going to go here or there. They would establish a duration. We're going to do it for a year. Uh, they, they would establish the transportation. This is how we're going to get there. And then they would establish the conclusion. We're there to make a profit. And so when we read this, we don't really think anything of it, but James says in verse 16 that this statement is arrogant and this statement is evil. Now, when you read that, did you get that? When I read it on the surface, it seems like a, a very normal statement that would reflect everyday marketplace life. It would reflect normal planning and expanding. And, and it seems that on the, just, just in what James says that there are no unethical or unlegal practices, illegal practices that are taking place. It's just business people taking initiative and planning for a profit. And if you um, were to listen to this and you were a CEO, you would be very happy to hear that your, your people, your employees are planning with such uh, foresight to make a decision to go somewhere, to do it on their own, and to make a profit. So the question is, what is James's problem? I mean, James just got to be in his bonnet. What is the problem? How is this arrogant or evil? Now, before we really see what James is looking at, I want you to see what James is not saying. James is not saying that making a profit is evil. James is also not saying that making plans are evil. The Bible teaches much about planning and preparation and sees it as a virtue. We all would agree that to, uh, to fail to plan is to plan to fail. And there is much wisdom in planning and, and executing our plans. And if you are in business, you are in the sole business of making money. You're not just in the business of giving everything away. And there's nothing wrong with making money. And there's nothing wrong that if this week you meet in a planning session with your team and decide that you're going to go to New York next week and you're going to go uh, sell whatever you sell, your widget, and make money. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing with coming up with a strategy for that. So James here is not condemning that. What is James condemning? Here's what he's condemning. The statement in verse 13, as benign as it may sound, was malignant. And it was malignant with this. It did not contain God. The statement that is made in verse 13 is a godless statement. There is no uh, presence no reference, no deference to God. In other words, it sounds like normal business planning, but God is nowhere in this equation, that God's sovereignty is omitted from this business plan. And to James, this type of thinking sounds awful familiar to those who are friends with the world, following the wisdom from the world. Jesus would talk about an arrogant farmer who had a great season. And he said that I'm going to build bigger barns and bigger barns and I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. And I'm going to just live a, a happy life and I'm just going to live up. But God says, tomorrow you're going to die. And what Jesus gets at is the same thing that James gets at is, is that what James is condemning in this text is this attitude of independence, this attitude of arrogance and self-determination and presumption that is driven by personal success, material acquisition, and profit without even thinking of God. In other words, you make decisions that you consult only yourself about and that you yourself determine your future and you own what is yours and your success is all in your hands and everything is in 
your control. And James says that the issue is that this is God ignoring. And this is God forgetting. One of the worst things that you could ever do to a person is forget them. Have you ever been forgotten? Have you ever felt what it was like to be forgotten? In the Old Testament, one of the great sins of Israel was to forget God. That's why over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God says, when you go to a place that you didn't establish and you didn't build and you didn't buy, but yet you're experiencing the blessings of it, don't forget who gave it to you. Over and over and over again, we are called to remember because we are so prone to forget. And oftentimes, if you're honest, we only sometimes think about God when it's convenient or when we are uncomfortable. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 32. Jeremiah says this, Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. One of the things that I've, I've, I've done quite a few weddings, and I've got a, quite a few weddings to come. I've got a, a wedding this evening I've got to, uh, going to attend. And I, I've seen a lot of weddings. And one thing I've never seen is this. I've never seen a bride come down the aisle and look at her husband and say, Well, honey, I forgot my dress. I forgot my makeup. I've never seen anybody. Matter of fact, I've never seen an ugly bride either. Because they're always dressed their best. And the reason why they're always dress their best and have their makeup on and have everything on is because it's important to them. You know what I found? You always remember what's important. And so God says, listen, when you forget me, I mean, I don't, I don't see a woman getting married, forgetting her makeup and forgetting her dress, but yet my people have forgotten about me. And the reason why is because we don't see God as important. Now, James here goes along with this. And in verse 14, he he says here kind of the futility of it, how, how almost idiotic it is to make plans and to be delusional about the fact that you know what's going to happen. Because here's what he says in verse 14. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. He brings us back to reality. He brings us and shows us our humanity that you and I tend to make plans and live our lives as if we are in control and we naively believe that if we plan it, it will happen. But you and I have no clue what will happen. We have no idea what the next hour will bring. We have no idea what the next day will bring. We have no idea what the next week or the next year may bring. Did you know that a year from today is the presidential election? God help us all. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we make plans and we think that we're in control, but we have no control. You have no control over the circumstances or the events of your life. It is a mystery. You have no ability to determine these things. And if you do, let's go to Las Vegas. And we'll put some bets down this afternoon. You do not know. James says, listen, you act and presume as if you know the future, and yet you don't even know what the next few minutes will bring. And then he asks this question. He says, what is your life? You are a mist. Not only does he talk about our humanity, but now he talks about the brevity of our life. He says, your life is like a mist. Now, this past week we've, we've woken up. I think that's good English. We've, we woke up and we saw the fog. Some of you that got up this week early, you saw the fog. And, and it was very foggy. My grandma used to say it was very froggy out there. And, and all this fog. And, and so some of us, we think, well, that's what James is getting at, is that our life is like fog. And that in the morning when it comes, it, it, it dies away, but yet it lasts for a while. But no, what James is not saying, and when his use of this word mist is not like a fog that lingers in the morning until the sun sends it away. 
This is more like a vapor or like a puff of smoke. We have nowadays people not only smoke cigarettes, but they vape. And we know that vaping is not as cool anymore because you can die from it. You can also die from cigarettes. One just may take longer than the other. But have you seen somebody smoke a cigarette and you've seen that puff? Or they vape and they go puff? James is saying that's what your life is like. It's like a puff of smoke. See, our lives on this earth are so short and compared to eternity. And compared to God, our life is nothing. We're finite. God is infinite. God knows everything at once. And if He doesn't know it, then it doesn't exist. And yet, when we think or act or plan our lives like we know what's going to happen tomorrow, we are assuming the place of God in our lives and in the lives of others. And what James wants to do is he wants to bring us back to reality. That we are not as significant as we think we are. We're delusional because we're limited and we're frail. Here's what he's getting at. We are not only ignorant of tomorrow, but we may not even be here tomorrow. R.C. Sproul, speaking of this topic, said that the grand difference between a human being and a supreme being is precisely this. Apart from God, I cannot exist. Apart from me, God does exist. And God does not need me in order for Him to be. I need God in order for me to be. This is the difference between what we call self-existent being and dependent being. We are dependent. We are fragile. We cannot live without air, water, or food. No human being has the power of being within himself. Life is lived between two hospitals. We need a support system from birth to death to sustain life. We are like flowers that bloom and then wither and then fade. This is how we differ from God. God does not wither, fade, and is not fragile. The delusion of self-sovereignty. But now we see the second point. The delight of submitting to the sovereignty of God. It's the delighting. He says in verse 15, He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He wants us to be theologically informed of the posture that we should take in planning events of our lives. He says, if the Lord wills. Now, to James, this is not merely a catchphrase. Uh, Growing up, I remember in in Sunday school, uh, my Sunday school teacher saying that everything that you should say when talking about the future, you should always add the phrase, if the Lord's willing. In the country, we would say, if the Lord is willing and the creeks don't, don't rise. Have you heard that? Now, a lot of people used to think that the creeks, uh, that this phrase came from worrying about the water level of the creeks, but actually that the original phrase came in the 18th century speaking of the creek Indians. So there you are if you're ever on Jeopardy. The Lord willing and the creeks, the creek Indians don't rise up and kill us. It's basically the thought. Even before that, the thought was the Latin phrase, Deo Valente. Some of the great pious people, the Puritans, and people like Wesley and Whitfield would say, we will do this, Deo Valente. They would even sign on the letters, DV, speaking God willing. 
And James here is, is not saying that we need to legalistically add to our sentences when we're talking about the future, the phrase, if the Lord wills. This is not so much about the phrase as it is about the attitude of our hearts. In the Middle East, if you speak to someone who's an Arabic speaker, they will use the phrase, inshallah. Uh, it's something that you hear quite a bit. And inshallah in Arabic literally means God willing. And they'll say it, almost anything, anytime you ask them about doing something. Hey, would you meet me tomorrow? They'll say, inshallah. Uh, and they'll especially use this if they don't really want to meet you. <laughs> so say, I want to meet you tomorrow. And they'll say, inshallah, God willing. That is, if I'm still here tomorrow and I want to meet you, I'll try my best to meet you. But when you hear, if I'm in the Middle East, and as I've been quite a bit, I hear them say, Inshallah, I know we ain't meeting tomorrow. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So what I'm saying is, is that we're not trying to use some catchphrase to be a catch-all so that we're in, quote-unquote, the will of God. But instead, it should be conforming our thinking and planning and humbly acknowledging our dependence on God as being absolutely in control and having authority over all things. What James is struggling with is believers who are opposed and are arrogant and self-sufficient and God-ignoring in their planning. So to James, it's not enough just to perceive our ignorance, which is not hard, but to acknowledge God's superiority. So he says, if the Lord's will, we will live. If it's the Lord's will, we will live. God gave us breath, the breath you just took. God gave you. He can also take your breath away. He brought you into this world. He can take you out of this world. You and I are here at the very mercy of God for our daily existence. Every breath that you and I take is of the sheer mercy and goodness of God. Jonathan Edwards said this. He says, I must remember... This, that everything I enjoy today, which is better than hell, is strictly by the mercy and gracious upholding power of God. Every day is a gift. If the Lord wills, we will do this. We will live. If the Lord wills, we will do this and we will do that. Donald Burdick on this passage said this, for a believer to leave God out of his plan is an arrogant assumption of self-sufficiency, a tacit declaration of independence from God. It is to overlook reality. For whether men recognize it or not, they will live or do this or that only if the Lord wills it. So James here, again, is not about words. He's about the attitudes of our heart that leads to action. So to James, it's not just enough to say, Lord willing, then go about your business. See, that's what some of us do. We just add this little phrase and we're going to go about what we'd already planned to do that day. No, it's not just saying, Lord, willing. But it's being willing to follow the Lord's will in our lives. Did you catch that? It's not enough to say, Lord, willing. But it is being willing to follow God's will in our lives. Not God willing, but really it should be, am I willing? It's an attitude that affects not only how we plan, but it should affect what we plan that we recognize that our lives are not our own, that we are merely here to please and glorify God. And therefore, all of our plans and all of our planning that we do, which is both good and right, must be informed by, driven by, fueled by this greater reality 
that I do not live for myself. Paul says to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You whom you have from God. God put His Spirit in you, which means that you are not yours. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price, and that price was expensive. So glorify God in your bodies. That's what James is getting at. So that's why he says in verse 17, this, so whoever knows the right thing to do, fails to do it for him and is a sin. Listen, we have to get this in our minds, that sin is not just doing the wrong thing. It's also when I do the right thing. It's also when I do not do the right thing that I know I should do. So the question is, well, what is the right thing here, James? And here's what the right thing is. The right thing is to reject the delusion that sees God as irrelevant to my life. And to embrace that He is ultimately relevant and that our lives should revolve around His kingdom and His wills, not our own. That my plans should not revolve around me, but I should revolve my plans around Him. So here's the question. How do you calendar God in your life? Because if we're honest, a lot of us have a lot of calendar apps on our phones, but we're all guilty of calendaring and planning God out of our lives. In your calendar, where's God? Where's God? Are you too busy for God? How sporadic is your church attendance? You say, what does that have to do with God? It has everything to do with God because God said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. If you don't come to church, you're saying to the church, I don't need you or I don't want you. And you're saying to God, God, whatever you have planned for my life is not what I want because I have something else planned for Sundays and it doesn't include you. Do you know that the average regular attendee who in surveyed, being surveyed, they ask you how many times a month do you come and the average comes out to the average regular attendee attends 1.6 times a month. It's not even every other Sunday. You understand that coming to church is not to be something that you do legalistically. It should be something that you should want to do. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because you showed up this morning. But the question is even deeper. How often do you spend time with God? How often do you spend time with God in His Word and in in prayer and in quiet time? Where is that on your calendar? Where is that at? And your to-do list for the day, where is God? Because here's what I found. If I don't calendar time with God, sometimes I'll calendar Him out. How do you plan financially? You know, in our minds, we think, well, you know what, I have such and such income that I get and and I'm going to have this plan and that plan, and I sit down with my wife, and we have this budget, or, or some of you say, I sit down with my husband, and we come up with this budget. Here's the question. Where is God in your budget? Because God should be number one in your budget, because every penny that you get this week came from Him. Oh, we're going to get that next week. <laughs> James chapter 5. There'll be, no, there'll be like me and my wife and Jesus here next week, and... But the question is, where is God in your financial planning? You say, well, pastor, I give God spare time and pocket change. Well, it's no wonder that your life is a wreck. What about your family time? How do you plan God in your family time? 
Is God in your family time? In your job? Where is God at in how you do your job? Where's God in your retirement? How is God in your life? Do you realize that if you are a Christian, your life is not your own? Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to, in the first of the year, go through the Lord's Prayer. He says this phrase, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's not my kingdom, not my will, but I humbly depend on and want your will to be done because I know that what is best for my life and my family and my future is you, so I trust you. Listen, this must be functional, heartfelt, lived out submission to the good providence and sovereignty of God. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand because we already probably know who you are. How many of you worry? I said you didn't have to raise your hand. Now you're going to worry that people didn't raise their hand and you rose your hand and now you're going to worry about that all afternoon. (laughs) The reason why we worry is because we can't control the future. And worry is fear and fear is trying to control what you can't control. And because we don't know what's going to happen and because we see that we don't have any control over what's going to happen, we worry. I can worry. Starting next Tuesday, I need you to pray for me. Kentucky basketball season officially opens. As many of you Gator fans yesterday were anxiously waiting in the fourth quarter for God to show up on the field in Jacksonville. Instead, the devil showed up and you lost. Now there's basketball season. See, join Kentucky fans. We have four or five games every season, and then we go to basketball season. I sit and I worry, and I, I angst, and I, and I do all these crazy things. And I, there's, not, there's not one point that can be added to Kentucky's score by me worrying about it. Do you ever get anxious or worry or get nervous Because there's a way that you want your world to be and you're not sure that your sovereign God is going to be able to deliver it. See, when we worry, and all of us are going to worry about something this week, when we worry, we're saying, God, I don't trust you. When we worry this week about whatever it is, we're saying, God, I don't trust you and if I were in control of the universe, I would do a better job. Within our hearts is this inner struggle for supremacy, for control. And, and James is saying it's foolish. Doug McDonald on this issue said this. He says, we live in a culture of control. Either we have control or we want control of everything around us. From the television in front of our eyes to the weather over our heads. But sometimes the world does not submit to our control. The television remote doesn't work. The weather won't cooperate. It would be better, however, if everyone acknowledged that God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by His own wise and holy providence according to His unfailable foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That is providence according to the Westminster Confession of Faith. But he says, put it differently, it's this. It would be better if we acknowledge that God is in control. What then should we do 
Under the sunlight of God's sovereignty, we should be holy and happy. Rejoice in the Lord, obey Christ's commands, do good to others, eat your roast beef sandwich, sip your Coke Zero, smile, God loves you, seriously. There's a great joy that can come into your life when you daily and truly trust in His control rather than your own perceived control. See, when you stop, I wrote this this week, when you and I stop trying to run the world and simply trust in the God who is running the world, when we come out of the delusion that we have any control and rest totally in His control, there's joy. There's joy. Listen, my friends, until we get to the point where we can say to God, Thy will be done, and we say it from the bottom of our hearts, we will never know peace. Tim Keller says that we will feel compelled to try to control people and control our environment and make things the way we believe they ought to be. And yes, to control life like this is beyond our abilities and it will just dash us into the rocks of life. Do you want joy? Then stop trying to run the world. Stop living as if the world and your world is on your shoulders. Now, I'm not calling you to passivity, but I'm calling you to activity in trusting Jesus. See, as I read this text, and we're about to end, and I know a lot of you are about to be excited. Well, you're going to say, wow, that's a quick sermon. But I don't know, as I read this passage, it's as if James has just got me again. That here in this text, this week alone, my own self, working on the sermon this week, God had to vividly remind me, I'm not in control. Here in this text, our sinful desires and personal planning expose the shallowness of our faith. And the good that we know we should do, we find ourselves not doing. See, James wants us to see that we cannot live the Christian life on our own. It is the kindness of God this morning that is willing to correct us and show us how delusional it is to try to live our lives without any reference towards Him. So here's some questions we want to ask. Number one, how can I come to the place where I live trusting in His control and not my own? How can I see that my life should revolve around Him? How can I be free from the tyranny of my insecurities and pride? Here is how. I must submit myself God. That's how. I must submit myself to God. I want to end with this. You guys know what this is? It's a remote control. Growing up, this used to be, in my mind, one of the most powerful instruments ever created by mankind. I remember me and my sister, which was always a challenge for who would be the greatest? Because I would grab this remote with by my hands and say, I have the power. <laughs> Fast forward in time, I have children. 
when, when they were little, we would have problems. We couldn't find the remote. You ever have this problem? Where's the remote? My kids would take the remote. They would start pushing buttons. The batteries would die, and you couldn't find the remote. You would be watching a television. They would come and grab it and start pushing buttons. So finally, we gave them a fake remote in which in their hands they had this fake remote. And they thought they were hot stuff. They would push buttons, but guess what happens? They got older. And they realized this is a fake. And so what we did is we wanted to very much watch what they, make sure that they watch something good. So we put on our television parental controls. You know, you can do this. And so they had what they thought was the power but yet, they were all under our control. And so here they are, pushing buttons, thinking that they're going to watch what they really think is cool to watch. And it's all under my control. And here's what I found, and here's what I've taught them, that if you don't like what you're watching, realize this, I own the TV. And I can take this TV out. And I thought about that this week. I thought about that this morning. And I think that sometimes we hold on to our little control and we think it's something. Whatever that is, whatever that thing is that we're trying to control. Maybe it's our, our health. And we think, you know what, if I just push the right buttons, my health is going to be fine. Or maybe, maybe we think it's our job. And if I just push this right button, then my job's going to, I can control my job. Or maybe we think it's relationships. And if I can just push the right buttons... And if I use my own ingenuity, I can control my relationships or maybe it's my future. And if I just push the right buttons and I keep pushing and aiming it, I'm going to be able to control my future. But here's what I found. I don't have any control. I really don't. At best, it's a dummy remote. Or at worst, it's a dummy remote. At best... It's a remote that gives me some options, but it's all under his great providence of, of control. And if I don't like it, he can take my life away. So here's what I want you to do this morning. I want to end with this. How can I truly have joy in my life and trust God? It's when I lay my remote down. And I lay it down at the altar of God. And I submit myself to God. And I humble myself to God. And I realize that, that I can't save myself. I can't do anything for myself. And whenever I lay my, my perceived control down at His feet, that's when I get joy. You know, there's another time in Scripture where Jesus was struggling. Did you know that Jesus had a struggle moment? It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what was to come. He knew that he was about to be not only crucified in a very horrible fashion, but he was about to take upon himself the sins of the world. Your sins, not his, your sins, my sins. And what did he pray in the garden? Not my will, but thy will be done. This morning, that's what we should say. Not my will, but thy will be done. I give you my perceived control. I lay it down. So this morning, that's what I want us to do.